This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I am a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I interviewed Philippa, who is an intended parent and single mother by choice. Philippa has one of the most inspiring stories I've heard in the surrogacy community. Not only has she gone through cancer diagnosis and treatment, she is also pursuing surrogacy with an interstate surrogate, making embryos with donor sperm, and as you'll hear, she is inducing lactation, ready for the impending birth of her baby. I'll hand over now to Philippa. Hello, my name is Philippa. I'm a SMCIP, which is a solo mother by choice, intended parent, and I live in Broadford, Victoria, which is a semi-regional town just about an hour outside of Melbourne. I'm an event producer and a friend and a dog lover, and I'm also very much wanting to be a parent. Thank you, Philippa. That's a really lovely introduction. Thank you. So tell me, how did you come to surrogacy? I came to surrogacy following a cancer diagnosis when I was 33. I um, was told that my treatment would render me infertile and also unable to carry a child as well. I had, I didn't have, I had cervical cancer. I didn't have a hysterectomy, but I did have radiation, um, chemotherapy, and also brachytherapy, which is um, actually medieval torture disguised as medical treatment. Um, and all of that rendered me unable to have a child. How did you find out about the diagnosis? Was did, Were you having symptoms? Yeah, I had a really long process. I, I want to be really clear from the very beginning with cervical cancer, it's often picked up through pap smears. I was always regular with my pap smears and never even had an abnormal result. But I did start having some unpleasant symptoms down below. Um, I also had a lot of stomach bloating and fatigue. Um, so I started having um, some consults with my doctor who had diagnosed a bacterial infection in my nether regions, which is just a very common um, infection was treated continuously with antibiotics as it just kept recurring. What we didn't know at that point was it was infected necrotic tissue. I then experienced, after months of this taking place, really significant ab abdominal pain and was admitted to hospital with suspected appendicitis. I was reviewed in the hospital. I even had a CT scan of my abdominal region. Um, was cleared of appendicitis. My cancer never showed up. And the doctor that I saw said, must be something gyny, off you go. And didn't bother um, following it up any further. So I went back to my doctor and I said, if there is something gyny going on, I really want to know because I want to have children and I don't want anything to um, get worse or impact my ability to have children. So uh, she sent me for an internal ultrasound. I tried it off for the ultrasound, which I hemorrhaged blood for 24 hours after having that ultrasound. The uh, sonographer even took me aside because I was bleeding as soon as I got off the table and said, you know I didn't do anything wrong. He was so worried that he, I thought he'd hurt me in some way. And I was reassuring him and said, 
this is obviously symptomatic of the problem. Um, the results of that ultrasound came back clear. Again, no sign of cancer. Went back to my doctor and I just said, where is all of this blood coming from? Because there was so much by this point. So she said, oh, let's just do another pap smear. You're nearly due. And she did another pap smear. And this time um, it was further up the cervix than what, where they normally go. And the results of that didn't come back abnormal. They just came back saying, you have adenocarcinoma in situ, i.e. you've got cancer. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty full on. And every step, you know, at that point, it's like, okay, I've got cancer. But the doctor said, because um, I said straight away, can I still have children? She said, yes, absolutely. Um, we'll just send you off. You'll have a procedure called a cone biopsy done. And um, that, you know, they just want to cut right around it, make sure there's a clear margin and then you'll be fine. You might need some additional help when you carry a pregnancy with a stitch in your cervix, but you'll be okay. So I was shuffled off to um, a, a leading gynae oncologist at uh, Francis Perry at the Women's Hospital in Melbourne. And even he was very reassuring and just said, no, this will be fine. We'll get you in. We'll cut it out. It'll be all okay. When I woke up from my surgery, my medical certificate, instead of being for one or two days, was for a whole week. And I knew at that point exactly what that meant. And on the day, um, it was a Monday, I had the surgery. I got the phone call on the Friday that I remember clearly that said, I've got your results. They're not good. I think you should come in now and it's best you bring your mother with you. Wow. That's pretty heavy for somebody at 33 to be going through all of that and then getting results that were not so great. No. Um, a 20-minute drive took my mum only 15 minutes that day to get to me. I was still paralysed in bed. She picked me up. The appointment was in the afternoon. We just left the house and just, I don't even know what we did that day. Um, and we went to see the oncologist. My best friend met me there as well. So I was flanked with the two, you know, strongest and greatest women in my life. And we sat with the oncologist and he said, we didn't get it all out when we went in to do the biopsy. We cut straight into a tumour. Um, you're going to need further treatment. We're referring you through to Peter Mack, which is the leading cancer hospital in Melbourne. And uh, he said, you're going to need chemotherapy and radiation. And they're all just the biggest, scariest words that anybody can ever hear. And I asked him, just as I asked my other doctors, can I still have children? And he said no. Okay. So did they talk to you at that time about um, doing an IVF cycle to, to get eggs or was that off the cards as well? Um, not immediately. So um, I pretty much collapsed to the floor at that point and was being held up. And he got quite stern with me and I can quote his words, which were, right now your mortality is more important than your fertility. Um, which, you know, coming from a man, yeah, good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I should say not all men would understand that. But yeah. his first priority was getting me in for testing and um, seeing exactly how bad or good the cancer was. And he said, if, you know, it hasn't spread further throughout your body, you can have, um, you can do a cycle of IVF before we start treatment. So... 
we um, did all of those tests through Peter Mac and the good news was that it hadn't spread into my lymph nodes, which meant I was able to have treatment and I was referred immediately to Professor Kate Stern in Melbourne, um, who's quite renowned for fertility preservation in cancer patients. So uh, you went through an IVF cycle, I, I presume, in a bit of a cloud of, of trauma, having just received the diagnosis. Uh, were you able to get some eggs on ice? Absolutely. I got 10 eggs. Um, and Kate also is um, undertaken, was at the time, it was medical research, now it's common practice, um, research project in freezing ovarian tissue. So I also had some of my ovarian tissue frozen um, with the idea that it can be implanted into the abdominal wall at a later date and re-stimulated so that the follicles that are already in there can develop more eggs. So I did the egg freeze prior to treatment and got the 10 eggs, but I have also since um, in the last couple of years had some ovarian tissue put back as well. Okay. So uh, tell me about the cancer treatment. What happened with that? The cancer treatment wasn't fun, as any cancer patient will know. Um, I was fortunate in that, you know, my chemotherapy, I didn't lose my hair or anything like that, although I did feel that it was a good time to be a bit radical with my hair and got a mohawk, because um, when else can you do that in life? Um, it, was, it was just tough. Um, I was just exhausted. I just felt sick all of the time. I was incredibly hormonal. I was instantly thrown into menopause. Um, and I honestly think that I've kind of got an understanding of what it might be like to be pregnant in that sort of first 12-week phase when you're feeling really sick, really hormonal um, and just feeling a bit yuck. I kind of think, well, maybe that's a bit similar but it wasn't it wasn't the worst time of my life because again I had incredible support um, my mum was with me every single day drove me to every single appointment my friends were just constantly surrounding me with love and help um, and <laughs> it's nice to have a few months off work so <laughs> How soon after all of that treatment uh, did you think about uh, what you were going to do with those eggs and surrogacy? Yeah, well, when I saw Kate um, and she gave me the, the options of what I wanted to do and I just said, I want to do whatever options I've got, I want to take them. I just knew it was important to give myself choice um, later down the track. At the time, you know, I was single then, just as I am now. Um, and I just thought, well, it's not something that I want to do right now in having a children, child. But I know that later down the track, when I've got a partner, you know, when the time is right, when I've got the money, all of those things that you, you know, think you need to wait for, um, I thought, well, at least I've got the choice then. And I immediately started joining all of the surrogacy groups to, you know, just sort of um, on Facebook to just get my head around what it meant but after about a year or so I thought well, I'm not actually ready for this and I dipped out and didn't look again and it wasn't for another it was when I got my five-year-old clear from the cancer that I went okay now I can have a baby. How did you go about finding a surrogate? 
I I rejoined the groups and I wrote a um, private message to about 200 of my nearest and dearest friends through my own Facebook page. Um, don't ever do it through private message because everyone gets the notifications every time someone writes and it turned into a nightmare. Um, but yeah, so I, I wrote, I joined the Fertility Connections Forum. I sort of started sharing my story there um, with the post out to my friends and family. I got, it was really overwhelming the amount of love and support that I had from everybody. Um, I even had offers of money um, from my friends to help. And I also had two women from my own community come forward and say, I'd absolutely love to do this for you. Um, for whatever reason in life that that just didn't work out with those two, but the fact that they thought of it is beautiful. And I posted on the Australian surrogacy community Facebook page and um, incredibly had a response after two days from a woman who was interested in just hearing more about my story. And did that then lead to the surrogacy journey that you're now on? Yes, it did. Wow. I was yeah. like love at first sight. It kind of was. It was, we talk about how it was a little bit um, serendipitous and just the timing was right. And, um, you know, we had a lot of similarities and um, both, you know, once she'd introduced herself to me, I was really keen to know more about her as well. And, um, yeah, we were just writing essays to each other every day and just learning about each other. That's lovely. So tell me a bit about your surrogate. Um, I understand she's on the other side of Australia for a start. Yeah, couldn't be further away. She's in far north Queensland, um, is a solo parent herself with two beautiful children of her own. And, yeah, probably very different to me. We're different. We're very different people, but opposites attract. And um, we were both... We both uh, were looking for the same thing out of a surrogacy relationship. We don't even call it a surrogacy arrangement because it really was about being a, a relationship for us. Mm, that's lovely. So uh, you would have had to then go through the Victorian process. Um, tell me about finding sperm for those eggs. Uh, I applied through my clinic for anonymous donor sperm. I had considered using a known donor. I considered all of my options, co-parenting with a friend. Um, and I think I've landed in the, in the right, or I know I've landed in the right decision um, in using an anonymous donor. I have selected a donor, though, who has consented to being contacted prior to um, the child turning 18, which, because that for me was something important. So, yeah, I just applied through the clinic. They just have, you know, like all medical clinics, a rather bureaucratic process of just going about things. Um, I was on a waiting list for about five months and then one day they said, okay, you've got access to the database. And within 90 minutes, I had selected my donor. I make very quick decisions. <laughs> you do. That's <laughs> and, yeah. Um, for me, there was 11 donors who were available to choose from. I sped read through and shortlisted the donors down to 
three. And then um, I had very few sort of prerequisites for a donor because I didn't, you don't know what's going to be even available to you to know if you're even going to meet your prerequisites. So I had very few. I just wanted someone tall, someone of a similar age, someone with a similar um, sort of family background to, to what's, you know, to mine. And so I'd narrowed down to three and then the clincher was the letter. The donors get to write a letter to any potential child born of their donation. And there was one who just absolutely had me in tears. He just seems like such a together, um, educated and beautiful man. And I was crying and my housemate and I were reading them together and I'm, bawling my eyes out and pointing at the computer screen going, this is the one, this is the one. So I just knew and I just deleted the other two profiles instantly and that's it. Um, but he did, because it's surrogacy, donors, when they donate, they got to go through a certain level of counselling to ensure that they're mentally equipped to do what they're doing and understand fully what they're doing. Um, but then they have to be asked again when it's surrogacy. So there was the potential that he could have said, no, I don't want my donation used in a surrogacy arrangement. But fortunately for me, he said yes. So I got right through with my first pick. That's great. And so what happened with those eggs and the sperm? Um, once he was selected, I just hung on to him for a little while as I was growing new eggs from the ovarian tissue in my abdomen. And that's a very low yield process. And it took quite some time before I actually got some eggs. But as soon as I got, I think in my first successful collection, I got two eggs. And, and so it was at that point, they defrosted my 10 frozen eggs and had those two eggs. And then they did all of the science things that they do in the lab. And it was New Year's Eve that I got a phone call um, that said five of your first lot of frozen eggs have fertilised and both of your fresh abdominal eggs have fertilised and we will watch them. And on New Year's Day uh, of 2017, they called me and they said, we've only lost one of your fresh eggs the rest are fertilised and they were frozen. They were then frozen in at day two, I think, or day three. They were frozen quite early. Okay. So were you speaking with your surrogate throughout that process or did she come later? No, she was, she was on board through all of that. So it was really exciting to go from um, our relationship having, yes, we'll do this, but not knowing what we had to work with to all of a sudden, oh, my God, we've got six embryos, and I went on to get another two after that. Wow. So tell me, what are the challenges of going through the, um, the surrogacy process in terms of counselling and the legals with somebody from interstate? Difficult. The legals was less complex than the counselling. So with the legals, with the legals, I had a local Melbourne lawyer, Ben Sayer, and with um, my surrogate's lawyer, we had yours truly. Sarah, it was me, that's right. Um, mm. Who is flexible and willing and able to work via phone, email, Skype and use all of modern technology. Um, and that worked successfully for us. 
Um, the counselling, however, is somewhat difficult and I had to bring down my surrogate each time we had a counselling appointment at the clinic and then with the independent counsellor, we had to, uh, we did some of them, we used Katrina Hale who does um, Skype consultations. She's based in Sydney, I'm in Melbourne, my surrogate who's in Queensland. So logistically that was complex and we had a meet in the middle in Sydney to have our joint counselling session. Did you have any pressure from anyone in Victoria about needing to do counselling face-to-face rather than... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was at a time when the when VARTA were just bringing in their mandate that all sessions need to be, or at least one session needs to be face-to-face. Um, and had a lot of pressure from the clinic and also from VARTA as well. You know, I, I don't know, I can go on about that, but... <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't we all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then once you'd got through the process, tell me about the, the trying to get pregnant bit. The trying to get pregnant bit was challenging in some respects, but not too bad in others. We actually had done a dummy run of hormones in that my surrogate had to take the hormones simulating what she would do for a surrogacy and also had a uterine uterine biopsy done just to make sure everything was okay and this was all just prior to our PRP so we weren't able to um, do a transfer at that point Um, which is a shame because it all worked perfectly and it was a really beautiful healthy um, scenario that we could have put an embryo into But then we had to get the PRP approval. And as soon as we got that, I think the next month we started um, cycling to do a transfer. Um, And that would mean that my surrogate had to take, you know, several weeks of hormones to prepare her uterus and try and um, achieve an ideal uterus lining. Um, Being interstate, that meant she would have to come down several days before transfer to ensure that we were being um, monitored and checked for for the ideal environment. Um, Some scans were done interstate, but we found that there was a lot of disparity between different um, radiologists and there was misreporting of uterus linings that was very costly for us because um, a lining at certain points was measured at I think 10 millimetres when in actual fact it was only six and we were pushing ahead on the basis of those results which included interstate flights you know disruption to my surrogate's family etc and then a cancelled transfer because the lining wasn't um, thick enough so that actually happened two times we had cancelled transfers um, so we hadn't actually gotten to the point of putting embryos in we got to the point where we were about to, but the, um, my surrogate's lining wasn't thick enough. We then attempted a third time and my surrogate came down. We did all of the usual scans and tests and everything was looking okay, but the lining still wasn't thickening up. And our specialist said, I think we're going to need to cancel again. And uh, my surrogate and I both looked at each other and 
it was unspoken, but I think it was pretty clear that we both, we wanted to push ahead. I did a quick risk assessment in my head of, well, I know I can produce new eggs through this ovarian tissue. I know I've got seven other embryos in the freezer at this point. I think if we try one and it doesn't work, this is a point where I can take a bit of a risk. And we both said that we wanted to push ahead and we did. And lo and behold, we got our BFP. Congratulations. Thank you. So how far through the pregnancy are you now? 31 weeks and four days. Wow, not counting or anything. Not at all. <laughs> so what's it been like having a pregnancy in one state and you're in the other? Not easy, to be honest. Um, like everything is fine and, you know, I have a wonderful relationship with my surrogate, but I am a tactile person. I like and, and a visual person um, and I like to be useful as well. So I feel like I'm sitting down here twiddling my thumbs while my surrogate's doing all of the hard work. I'm not there to help. And, um, yeah, I just, I really feel the distance. Mm. Um, I haven't been an intended parent, but I can imagine that there might be some um, guilt around that, knowing that your surrogate's doing the heavy lifting somewhere else and there's only so much you can do to help. Yeah, I feel incredibly guilty and I'm also bound by um, legislation as to what I can do in some respects. There would be things that I would, I would normally do for a friend or family member who was undergoing any kind of difficult time and I would be, you know, lavishing them with, if I couldn't be there, I would be lavishing them with gifts and things to try and buck them up a bit. But um, I can't do that because of the law. So... Mm. Um, all I can offer are words of support and an ear and hopefully some understanding. But having never been pregnant and not just being pregnant but also having her own children to look after, working full-time, you know, a life around that as well, I couldn't even imagine how difficult it is. And I do. I feel incredibly guilty and useless. Mm. How often have you been able to get up there to visit? I've been going up once a month. Oh, that's lovely. Mm. So I understand from what we've talked about that you're also uh, inducing lactation so that you can breastfeed yes. baby when they arrive. Tell me about that. Yes, um, it was always my intention to um, put my rather ample bosom to good use. So I found out through joining the community um, that you could induce lactation and... Um, have since been online and done the research and it's the Newman Goldfarb protocol that I'm following that every IP follows and um, I started taking medication hormones and domperidone back in November of last year we're now in April and I've been pumping for two and a half weeks and I'm getting about 16 mils at the moment of milk. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It's absolutely... You're already a breastfeeding mama. I am. And I, I feel exhausted. <laughs> I bet. So tell me, what, the, what does the protocol involve in terms of how often do you need to express? Uh, every two to three hours. So at that moment, while I'm still at work, I'm expressing um, from 7am in the morning through to about 10pm at night. 
I'm not doing one in the middle of the night. But once I finish up from work, I will add a night session in. But for me at the moment, um, I need the energy through a good night's sleep to get through my work day. So. In terms of uh, pursuing induced lactation, what sort of support would you need from uh, professionals? Is it just through your GP or have you had to see a lactation consultant? I did go and see a lactation consultant who is also a GP thinking she would be the best person to see. However, I really got a negative vibe from her and a feeling of um, hopelessness. She basically said, because I've never been pregnant before, I haven't developed any um, particular the particular tissue in my breasts that would uh, help with the pumping and uh, with establishing a supply. And um, I have a few other sort of contributing factors to my health. And she basically said it would be too hard for me. So I didn't, I wasn't prepared to accept that and I've decided not to see her anymore. I just went to my GP and I just said, this is what I want to do. He knew nothing about it, but he read all of the information and we've been going through it together and he's incredibly supportive and I'm leading him essentially, but he's providing all of the necessary backup and support around it and did all of you know the medical testing did an ECG on my heart and things like that to make sure that we were going in it to it safely, um, but to give it the best possible chance. And when baby's born, have you been able to negotiate with the hospital about um, you feeding baby and has that caused you any challenges in terms of whether the hospital will agree to that sort of thing? To this point, they, they just sort of accepted it as, a, oh, that's just how it is. So the hospital... Uh, this is the first surrogacy birth that they'll be having at the hospital and they um, are not too concerned. They, I'm actually booked in to see one of their lactation consultants next week. So they're providing all of the support around that without blinking an eye. That's great. That's mm. fabulous. Mm. If you had any advice for any intended parents, perhaps focusing on single mums by choice, would you have any advice for... Um, intended parents who are single mums well I don't know what it's like yet being an actual parent but going through the process it's a long and arduous process and you know you really need your support system around you and I guess that's the same as when you have a baby I'm fortunate I have an incredible amount of support from my mother family and my friends and you need to be uh, organised as an event producer, you know, that's got pretty strong project management skills. There's no one else to pick up the slack in the areas or when it gets too hard, you can't hand it over to the other person and say, this is too much for me, you do it. You have to do everything. And there are occasions when you're fighting with your clinic over an invoice or whatever and you're really worn down, you just have to keep going. Mm. Um, that's hard. I think actually that's what I struggled with the most in the process was not being able to hand over the bits when I was exhausted. And there were several of those occasions. Mm. So you've got another eight or so weeks until a baby arrives. Um, what are you most looking forward to? Meeting my baby. That's beautiful. Tell me about your relationship with your surrogate. We have developed... Um, quite a sisterly relationship one that 
um, is where you can either speak every day or not speak every day, but you're always there for each other. And we always intend to be a part of each other's lives. We'll both be aunties to each other's children and we've got some plans to catch up. Um, hopefully every once a year at least, because we live so far apart, once a year together in the flesh and go on a holiday together. That's lovely. That was episode nine of the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram, on Facebook, and at sarahjefford.com.